0: Welcome to the
1: New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today we're pleased to have Arya Aryan with us to talk about his new book, The Post War Novel and the Death of the Author, a book published by Palgrave in 2020. Arya is a professor is an associate professor of literature in Istanbul, who'll tell us more about himself. Arya, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you very much for the time and the opportunity for me. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, as you said, I'm an assistant professor in English literature. I did my PhD in postmodern and contemporary literature and the medical humanities from Durham University in the UK. I also carried out a postdoctoral research fellowship. Um, at the University of Tübingen. And my research interests are postmodernism, contemporary literature, the medical humanities, also digital humanities. And I've published a few articles and a couple of books, including this one, the post-war novel and the death of the author. It's all yours. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we should ask about uh, your upcoming work as well. Uh, the post-war novel and the death of the author. Tell us how the book came about, and what is the premise of the book?
0: Yeah, actually, um, it, it was an attempt to reveal and examine different functions and concepts of authorship in fiction and theory, before the death of the author debate, during and after that, so it's from the 1950s and 1960s to the present moment, it also reveals a trajectory of some of the modes and functions of the novel in the last few decades, up to the present moment almost. And its main argument is that the explicit terms of much of the theoretical and philosophical debate around the death of the author in the moment of height theory in the 1980s uh, have hardly been engaged in literary fictions by writers. Including Samuel Beckett, Borges, Muriel Spark, Sylvia Plath, Doris Lessing, Vladimir Nabokov. Um, so it, it examines the authorship debate before, during, and after the death of the author debate came to prominence in the 1980s. And and in
1: the first chapter, you provide this trajectory of all these uh, these these discussions, these debates about. Not, not necessarily the debate but the, the theory, the rise of high theory and the concept of the death of uh, uh, the author. Can you briefly tell us about this rise of theory and the concept of the death of the author and what it means for the uninitiated?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, it all starts in the 1960s as we can if we can find a you know kind of beginning, but more specifically, it's the 1967. With the publication of Roland Barthes, um, highly influential and acclaimed essay, the death of the author. Uh, so it could be regarded as the moment of the rise of theory. And when we say theory, we're, we, we're referring to it with a capital T, but sometimes high theory, which refers to the 1980s, So, which was associated predominantly with three key figures, uh, those we know as postmodernists, Roland Barthes, Jacques Derrida, and Michel Foucault. So these three key figures um, challenge the foundations upon which modern intellectual Western philosophy and history, let's say, since René Descartes, uh, had been built. So including its assumptions concerning the subject origins of the work, the work of art in the mind of the artist or the writer. So it, it, it was a radical theory of revolution, and it's also known as the theory, as I said, with T. Um This is the moment when the concept of creativity and authorship, which is grounded in humanist and romantic or expressionist concept of subjectivity, is challenged. So we can say 1967 marks this radical change and challenge. Another literary figure, or philosophical figure, is Jacques Derrida. He uh, put forward his theory in structure, sign, and play in the discourse of human sciences. It was again late 1960s, which questioned the foundation upon which the Anglo-American literary and critical tradition rests, such as the assumption that literature is an objective medium Uh, through which truth is delivered, and by truth is meant reflection of either an internal reality, as in the case of Romantic poets or even Modernists, or an external reality, like as we've got in literary realism. So his argument made clear that a final meaning is an illusion due to the deferral or perpetual deferral of meaning, which is intrinsic to the linguistic system. And um, so any degree of fixity or stability of meaning um, and knowledge is, is just an illusion uh, rather than reality. So because he said there is nothing outside the text, this is his um, dictum, his famous slogan, right? Language is a system, is self-referring and always therefore focused on itself uh, rather than an outside reality. So then there is no way to directly know the world um, outside it. Um, and what, what you said about there reminded
1: me of current culture where in the U.S., you know, that there's no reality. But, but that's a whole different story anyway. <laughs> it's a whole different kind of worms. Uh, what I particularly liked about the book was, and that was an aspect that I hadn't thought about myself, and that's the patriarchal aspect of the idea of uh, the death of an author or authorship in general. It's something that always escaped me but uh you specifically devote one chapter to this um the theories of authorship in the 1960s and how uh, female writers were writing back were writing about that so can you talk about uh how how how, let's say this idea of authorship was oblivious to the questions of gender
0: yeah actually the idea of uh bringing feminists into my consideration was uh that of professor patricia wall and i'm very thankful for her, uh, to, to keep the balance and, you know, fairness. Uh, it all starts with the feminist discourse of the 1970s, but even before that, because because feminist discourses did not just appear in the 1970s with um, key figures that we know, like German Guerrero, Millet, Forest Stone, and others. Um, although Virginia Woolf is an exception, had expressed the question of female authorship in a room of one's own. However, historically speaking, notions of creativity and authorship are primarily male concepts associated with masculinity because women are denied, or historically speaking, we're denied agency, authorship and creativity, all functions of the mind. Uh, So this is what Simone de Beauvoir calls out. Um, She calls out this patriarchal Uh, mind-body dichotomy where man is mind or represents mind or is associated with the mind the intellect creativity activity rationality Uh, she calls transcendence while women are flesh considered as flesh objects to which things happen they're irrational Uh, she calls it imminence so they're driven by biological forces. Um, so there is hardly any literary canon for women before the moment of high theory. So when we talk about the death of the author, uh, we need to have uh, first or establish an author to remove. But for women writers, there was never been a time where they were considered as authors. So now at the time of the death of the author debate, uh, women found it the right moment to... Express their concerns with patriarchal discourses that have dominated society and literary cultures uh, by bringing to the forward sessions and concerns and problems that uh, kind of uh, vexed all women um, on the patriarchy. So, women writers in particular um, try to counteract or challenge um, this male dominated discourses these male dominated discourses so they wanted to establish themselves uh their own self actually and be recognized as authors for the first time
1: and uh this female author they resort to the idea of madness right to liberate that fiction from that those patriarchal association can you talk about that concept as well
0: yes um it's a good question actually Although female writers in the 1960s and 70s didn't very much seem to be happy with uh, the death of the author debate for the reasons I just briefly explained, they made use of postmodernists' critique of um, the so-called universal categories of knowledge and value which actually exclude um, entire communities or groups of people or minorities and of claiming objectivity for knowledge which uh, actually just serves some um, purposes. So the patriarchal binary that women are driven by irrational emotional responses and forces, and are um, actually subject to or prone to madness, such as hysteria, um, is one of those concepts or patriarchal concepts of binaries that women, female writers, Actually, set out to challenge and question. So they deconstructed this binary uh, by drawing on uh, postmodernist ideas even before Jacques Derrida formulated deconstruction, and that's that's a very interesting point, I think. So we should bear in mind that hysteria, which was usually a term um, um, associated with women and femininity, it means suffering in the womb or uterus. Um, and we should also bear in mind that the the, the term hysterectomy, which is a surgery, is a removal of the womb or uterus that comes from the same root. So given the uh, prevailing discourses of uh, connecting creativity and art with madness, uh, these women writers were particularly subject uh, to be regarded, sorry, not women writers, women in general, uh, were particularly subject to be called mad or hysteric, Um, and the intellectual life was regarded as a threat to the female well-being. So it was actually, hysteria was called the female disease. So intellectual life includes education and creativity, so they were denied uh, or were discouraged to pursue any intellectual life including education and creativity, as they would be driven to madness according to that patriarchal notion. So, now to liberate women and femininity from this binary opposition, uh, madness-like hysteria uh, could be challenged into a reverse discourse, and that's what many female writers did, describing the conditions of women's uh, suffering under patriarchy uh, or under patriarchal law and uh, seen as a consequence of identity production under patriarchy. It's a, it's a kind of madness against madness that these female writers are actually performing in the poetry and the different literary works and novels. So in other words, they wrote about madness to reveal the patriarchal conditions which drive women mad. That madness is not a, an essentialist biological female disease uh, but it's a function or outcome of a patronic system so a mad person and also a mad person doesn't have much agency in control right because he or she is driven by you know irrationality so female writers um such as silver Plath, lessing Muriel spark um they, they resort to madness to portray female characters who deconstruct the film the, the patriarchal concept of um, the feminine self. And this is what um, simon de Beauvoir calls the myth of the eternal feminine, an attempt to reconstruct or create or find the true self, the true feminine self. So i give you an example. Silver Plat creates another myth, that of Dionysus, the, the ancient god, um, as, as this god embodies both a, deconstruct, sorry, a destructive and a creative force. So her poetry and novel are replete with um, images or references to kind of savage god who self-destroys and creates itself or resurrects. So the, the first way to female agency is liberating the body from the essential spirit. That women are biologically prone to hysteria, and now, yet yeah, this liberation requires self-destruction, therefore suicide, which is kind of dominant in silver Plath poetry, novel, and her life. For her, as well as for other many other female writers of the time, control over the body is of paramount uh, importance, and therefore they try to first establish their own agency and control over their body, then over their poetry, uh, which is a dangerous thing. It's like playing with fire, because if you practically and literally try to get rid of a physical body and recreate another body, that's, that's actually what we call suicide. If you do that with the self, with the concept of the self, and if you shatter the unity of the self, that's what we've got in psychosis. So it's a kind of mental illness and therefore they result to a kind of mental illness in order to draw our attention to the reasons why they're driven to this sort of madness. That That's how, you know, their, their literature works.
1: Uh, and this whole idea of death of an author is not in and of itself a new idea because there were other writers who were engaging with this. Not necess- they didn't necessarily call it death of the author, but they sort of erased uh, themselves from the... Work they were writing, or they came to show the uh, constructedness of the work. Uh, you did discuss writers such as Beckett, Bakov, or John Fowles. Can you discuss that as well?
0: Yeah. Well, actually, Beckett is one of the most um, difficult and complicated ones. The one that uh, whom Jacques Derrida almost never talked about, because he said because he did exactly what I theorized. Uh, so it, it's important to know that authorship is predicated on the humanist concept or assumption that there is a core, unified, coherent, um, universal, and at the same time autonomous self. So that's that's a premise. That's a first premise. It's a humanist premise, which is agency and control over um, the individual's thoughts and feelings, which we've got in the romantic Uh, poets. Uh, What is poetry? Poetry is the expression of the feelings and thoughts of the self, the person behind it, who precedes these thoughts and feelings. However, with Beckett, Beckett in the 1950s, about more than a decade before what we know as post-structuralism, he he did what Jack Derrida theorized really, because his fictional work Portrays characters who have lost this sense of unity and autonomy of the self. So, in the case of the unnamable, and some people refer to it as the unreadable, and it's very difficult. Uh, this narrator is called the unnamable. Uh, constantly hears intrusive voices, voices of others. He uh, cannot locate the um, the source of these voices. He cannot find the people behind these voices, and that makes these voices um, kind of Uncanny or threatening. Um, so, however, these voices are actually the projections of his own psyche. And that shows that there is this crack or a split in his psyche. His psyche is split into multiple selves. Yet, to some degree, he manages to channel these voices and substantialize them into palpable characters and almost uh, a kind of, not quite, a coherent or incoherent story. So here is the therapeutic function of the novel, actually, as it helps the subject with a split psyche gain some agency and control as you become the author of the voices which are the projections of your psyche. And therefore, when, when these voices become characters, you become the writer and you feel more in control. Um, for Nabakov, as for Nabokov, he captures the uh, paranoia and anxiety of living under a constant or a constant surveillance system during the Cold War era in his novel, in his famous novel *Pale Fire*. So, the, the novel shows that authorship is actually examined as part of the consequences of the projection of uh, one of the main characters, whose name is Kingbots. Uh, own seemingly paranoid consciousness onto an external reality, as it, and, and that it just refashions. So it shows another crack on the humanist concept of the self as a unified and autonomous. And we can also argue that these two characters in, in Pale Fire, which is uh, Kimbot and Shade, are both projections of Nabokov's own psyche split
1: All lowercase. That's slash special offer.
0: Uh, so, the fiction world that the novel inhibits is that of a kind of uh, paranoid, schizophrenic world, which is pitched between some sort of control on the one hand, control as authorship, and identity and agency on the other. And
1: uh, in your book, you move on to talk about the age of globalization and how the concept of author was redefined or changed, um, maybe in response to global crisis. Can you discuss that idea,
0: please? Oh, sure. Uh, we can say that roughly from the 1990s, um, global crisis, terrorist attacks, uh, environmental tipping points, economic insecurities, um, as in the case of 2000, two thousand eight global uh, sorry economic crisis financial crisis they all produce a demand for a new seriousness uh, on the part of the writer and a new sincerity in the novel or the end of postmodern playfulness or ironic playfulness uh, it's kind of the death of the self reflexive irony so many writers and Thinkers, including David Foster Wallace, noticed that the present risks that we're dealing with are global, are different from those of the, let's say, postmodern era. And therefore they argue that postmodernism is creative, passive, um, has sorry, has created passive oglers, people who just watch. Um, they constantly watch and almost do nothing. and. That postmodernism has failed to address and cope with these current global crises. So remember, uncertainty principle um, is a principle of postmodernism. And if you're always uncertain about anything, you're not going to do anything, right? So the ironic detachment that postmodernism offers, uh, among other things, has brought about a sense of apathy and cynicism in life and culture. So these writers offered a new mode of writing, which is sincere, but also it's an oscillation between a kind of postmodern irony, on the one hand, and seriousness and sincerity, which is ethically attached versus detached, as a kind of solution to the postmodern ironic, apathetic, detached lifestyle. Uh-
1: why some of these novelists? You do talk about some novelists in chapter five, such as Hilary Mantor or Salman Rushdie. How do they offer fiction as a therapy for these some of these global uh, crises that you mentioned for this changing paradigms um, of life?
0: Um, thanks for the question. That's what I've noticed is a kind of um, a kind of a revival of, of Victorian spirituality in okay. contemporary fiction. So we can say that all these writers that you just named uh, consider as an author as an ethically committed, social, political reformist, uh, the one with a global responsibility to heal the world, which reminds me of uh, 1980s Michael Jackson famous song, "Heal the World." You know, it's a kind of global idea, a responsibility commitment. So they portray characters who oscillates between mediumship and expressive authorship. So it's like a kind of modernist concept of medium, mediumship, as Eliot theorized in um, his famous essay that what is an author It's like a medium, like a catalyst, and also a kind of romantic, expressive authorship. So for example, both Mantel and Rushdie turn to mediumship and a kind of Victorian spirituality. So Mantel's heroine is a kind of shaman uh, who connects to benevolent and malevolent spirits that she considers voices. She she thinks she's a medium between two worlds. Uh, But all these spirits or ghosts are actually projections of her own traumatic uh, state of consciousness. So similarly, Salim in Midnight's, uh, she's protagonist in Midnight's Children, summons up all the midnight children, which are actually voices for the externalization of his own traumatic past. So yet both uh, use this as a capability. They're all mad people, in a sense. Uh, they've got split psyche, they've got uh, mental disorders, all these characters. However, they use this kind of capability, which endows them with an empathetic imagination and capability to connect and understand others in a world where people are disconnected and apathetic as a result of let's say postmodernism uh towards each other. Uh, Jam Ketzid does uh does similarly, however for some some other reasons, especially he's because he's vegan, right? So he also does it to connect and empathize and sympathize with animals. That if we can put ourselves, you know, and we can think ourselves uh, as, as as another person, and that's what literature is capable of, that we can think as another person thinks, we can sympathize and empathize. We can do that for animals. So he tries to give voice to the minorities or to the invisible. So that's how they try to find the use, the their kind of like mental diseases or mental illnesses among these characters in order to connect and empathize and sympathize with with others. This process also is therapeutic for the characters or for the person themselves because it fits many researchers recently done by many professors in psychology and psychiatry uh, that if for example, if a schizophrenic, is put uh, before the voices he or she hears and enters a dialogue with these voices, like Hilary Mantel's character, uh, heroine, who voices, who sorry, faces and encounters these voices, and some of these voices are those uh, who raped her or actually sexually molest her. So, and during the process the person finds some healing, some, some therapeutic solution. And then that results in the, the number of, in the number of times or occasions that the person hears voices actually decreases. So there is a drastic decrease in the, um, the occurrence of the voice-hearing experiences. And so that, that's therapeutic, and that's a kind of cognitive therapy type of thing in also psychotherapy and
1: what you said makes perfect sense uh people you know like lost souls looking for some sort some source of certainty and anchor to global problems to uh, economic problems or environmental problems and looking to these authors to provide that and that might explain even uh the rise of some pseudo-intellectuals in 21st century whom i guess you're familiar with uh, internet celebrities who have that voice of a prophet right that i tell you, this is the right way this is the right thing to do
0: um yeah Yeah, you're right because when you look at the number of books which have to do with like spirituality or like motivators spiritual motivators and you know so there is this kind of like revival of this sort of spirituality as Mm -hmm. as it seems that other almost to some like sciences uh have you know, to cope with global problems. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's the idea.
1: Yeah. Uh, a few months ago, I was talking to someone about the right, The I forget the name of the book. It was about uh, exotic orientalism in terms of, you know, Buddhism or Eastern religions providing this sort of exotic spirituality to people. And she used a very nice uh, expression. It's, she said that nowadays people are religious without being re- uh re- without having a religion it's it's religiosity without religion, and that explains partly the rise of all these uh you know new age things or new age spiritual practices, Buddhism, whatever they want to call it no matter how they worked and different they are from the original <laughs> version of them um just as a last question uh are you working is there is there any other uh project you're currently working on any books?
0: Yes, I'm working on actually multiple things. Uh, one is I'm, I'm looking into functions of metaphors, especially military and medical metaphors, because that's my uh, interest in the medical humanities and the contemporary fiction in the last couple of years, or three of the four years, especially a little bit before and during the COVID-19. Uh, so that's one of the things I'm doing. Uh, another thing I'm working on is... I'm actually looking into different functions of, uh, surveillance in the 21st century, especially with regards to intelligent systems, AI, and how it's different from, uh, Michel Foucault's, you know, mechanism, uh, especially with regards to, um, global capitalism. And, and democracy so these are the things that i'm at the moment looking into oh,
1: fascinating i guess we'll be talking to you soon once uh your new uh book projects are out
0: <laughs> thank you very much I thank would you very honored.
1: much thank you very much dr Arya Aryan, and uh thank you for taking the time to talk with us about your book
0: thank you very much for the opportunity and hosting me have a very lovely time